I can only think six days ahead. I'm like a snail. How long can snails think for? How long do snails actually live for? That's a good... I think some of them live a long time. Not in France. Oh. <laughs> just the tasty ones. We though. don't have a French listener yet, so that joke is still tasteful. <laughs> hey, as far as I can tell, it was very tasteful. Yum. <laughs> wow. Okay, question number four. Um, I'm looking it up. Mm. Two to three years. Some larger species may live ten years in the wild. <laughs> Sorry, did you mean the questions? I was still thinking about snails. <laughs> of course I meant the question. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Arzatz. This week's episode is the part two to last week's Let's Argue Music Pedagogy Edition. If you haven't listened to that episode, please go back and check it out. Um, I highly recommend it, not only because it's a two-part episode, but also because this part is extremely self-referential, and you're going to miss a lot of context, because this was recorded all at once, and we kind of kept talking about all the same stuff throughout. Uh, the score is currently 1-1. One to one. Seth and Livy are tied in the uh, debate, and so question three is coming up right here. <gasps> it's a puppy. I but turned my on, video Adam. on so you could see this nonsense. He's trying to <laughs> climb in my chair. Nice. Get out of here, boy. All right, question three. We're tied right now. It's one to one. Would you teach borrowed chords before secondary dominance or vice versa? There's no bias in this question because I literally don't remember how we taught it at USM. Can you define what both of those are for our listeners and maybe for me a little bit as well, just so I know for sure? Uh, all right, so borrowed chords, also known as modal mixture, is when you are playing in a major key, you can steal chords from the parallel minor. So instead of having your major four chord from the major scale, you can steal the minor four chord from the minor scale and just use it. All the pitches, I mean, all the chords function the same still. They still re retain their functional harmonies. Um, it's just a fun substitution you can make. Uh, the ones that get used the most are flat three, minor four, sometimes minor five, flat six, and flat seven. But diminished two is a fun thing to borrow. There's a <laughs> oh yeah, and diminished two that one as well. Yeah, um, there's a Schumann piece uh, where he does that, and it's it's a lot of fun. But anyways. And that is really tough for students in ear training class because they already can't tell the difference between major four and minor two. So then when you add a minor four and a diminished two into the mix, they'll never get it right for the rest of the semester. Well, yeah, but going back to we should teach Shanker alongside of other things. If you teach them that it's a predominant chord, then they've at least got a fighting chance of guessing at the color of that chord. Yes, but, but that's yes. that's not what we're talking about. And that's what I taught without ever saying any of that. So, so I can't. I I've settled on my position, and I don't think I can argue the other side. So, Seth, I'm gonna jump in. Okay, so, um, I'll prepare my argument. Okay, so I initially I, my oh, mind. Sorry, can I interrupt you? Yeah. We didn't say what a secondary dominant was. Okay, yeah. Uh, a secondary dominant is when you can insert a chord that is not in your diatonic set of chords to briefly tonicize the following chord or sometimes following group of chords. So if I want to have five to one motion in the middle of my phrase, I can put in the five 
of the next chord, the dominant of the following chord, and just stick that in there, no matter how out of place it sounds, no matter how far away it is from my original key, I can make a secondary dominant by inserting that chord. Um, you can also do it with the uh, seven diminished, often the seven diminished seven, um, and that just tonicizes the chord comes after it. Yeah. Yeah. You can also use that to start key changes, but usually just stick it in the middle of a phrase to spice it up. Yeah, and if there's a nitpicky listener, um, like, yeah, it may not literally tonicize it because you may say that you have to have the phrase model to tonicize something, but the point is it brings attention to that chord through a dominant harmony and the key of Yeah, it creates chord. a 5-1 motion where there's not usually. Yeah. So, my thought right, initially Lizzie. went to written theory, like... Okay, what's the pedagogical value of teaching a secondary dominant before a mm -hmm. borrowed chord? And just off the top of my head, because I don't remember learning about this in pedagogy, off the top of my head, I don't see a strong argument either way. And it's like you could teach a secondary dominant first because they're more common. Like you see those often, and we're used to dominance. We're used to the motion of a leading tone going up to a tonic, so you can tell people like, look for that and you're training to listen for that along the same lines though you could teach a borrowed chord first because it teaches the this concept of chromaticism which is borrowed which is i think secondary dominance can fall under that umbrella of being a borrowed chord you're borrowing it from another key it's functioning here but you're borrowing mm -hmm. it so in theory like it can all fall under the borrowed chord umbrella in which case you could teach it in the sequence that feels most appropriate to you but then my mind went to ear training. And I think in ear training, there is a specific order that, in my mind, would help your students most, which is, like I mentioned, a secondary dominant first, because all secondary dominants should have that leading tone resolution, because you're tonicizing. And that is a very specific sound, one that they are very used to, or they should be. And you hear this strange chord that doesn't fit in, but if you hear... A leading tone motion that tells you what that is and it gives them this specific sound to listen for now with other borrowed chords you teach it the same way you have this strange chord but there should be a specific motion involved flat six resolves down to five correct i'm not crazy yeah um mm -hmm. and then yeah. if you have a neapolitan that is also going to resolve down so you get used to hearing very specific things but i think that secondary dominance would work first because you can teach the same motion like for this one specific type of chord um, and then once you get to borrowed you have to introduce more chords if you're going to do kind of all the common ones but you've gotten their ear used already to hearing function as a part of these strange chords um, and personally I'm an advocate for um, I can't think of the word we used but ear training and written theory classes that align with each other I can't think of the word do you guys remember Wait, ask it again? There's like a word for when your theory classes and your ear training classes follow the same order of concepts. There's a term for it. We talked about it in pedagogy, but I can't remember. But that some people I take mean, the it, approach of like the classes are not, they do not have the same structure. You learn oh, about different concepts at different times. Oh, I know what you're talking yeah. about. But, but I don't. Comprehensive yeah, sense. it's not no. comprehensive, but it, we talked about that at that time. But Essentially, I think that no. your ear training concepts should follow the written theory concepts that you're learning as best you can. And so I would want to teach mm -hmm. secondary dominance first in ear training. So therefore, I would teach them first in written theory as well. 
And my reasoning is more just for the benefit of ear training. Seth? So, I mean, I get that point. But Mm -hmm. I think that what we've talked about is... We have the Shanker phrase model of tonic predominance. I'm going to say, if you bring up Shanker one more time. <laughs> oh, no, Seth might sell me on this. I love a Shanker argument. <laughs> but the thing is, is that if that's what you're listening for, that on some level, it doesn't matter what I change out that predominant harmony for. So that that's a good to point. me, it makes more sense that, okay, even if your predominant harmony was... A diminished a diminished two does not sound anything like a diminished seven. Like it's a different sound because of the function of those things. And so that if you get you know, if you're teaching it and you're encouraging that Shanker phrase model listening skill, that really subbing out those different harmonies for like, you know, if you threw in a minor four before a five or if you threw in the diminished two instead of a two, like that they're already used to, those are predominant chords. And then trying to listen either for the soprano or the bass as to what's my, what's going to help me guess one way or the other. Because I would say within years, the first two years of your oral skills training, you're guessing. You may be a really good guesser, but you're guessing. It's like, all an educated guess, really. Right. And so that... Really, if you're following the phrase model, whether you guess, like, you're still guessing based on the predominant harmony, not necessarily hearing it as a predominant won't change your ability to figure out was that diminished or something else there. Mm -hmm. Because I think one of the misleading things that students think is, oh, the two chord is minor, I'll be able to distinguish that from the four chord, and they can't. That's fair. Because uh, they're both predominant harmonies. And so if if I know that they already can't do that, it doesn't matter if like one of those was diminished. They would still think that it's a predominant harmony. I have a quick question just to clarify. So would you uh, would you just teach borrowed cor- chords as a whole with secondary dominance included? And just well, focus more I mean, on the phrase model? Or like, are you saying borrowed chords first and then secondary dominance? I mean, I, my, my argument would be that when, if you have taught predominant chords already, it does not matter that you change the quality. Gotcha. So to you, it, there's no argument to teach secondary dominance before borrowed chords specifically. It's more just where they fall within the phrase model. I mean, it's just a really hard statement to make. I was trying to make it without saying it. No, I was buying into it, which, I mean, to me, it sounded like you were essentially saying, just introduce this concept of borrowed chords, like chromaticism, but teach kind of all of them through the phrase model. And then you have specific things that you listen for from there, but it doesn't have to be secondary dominance before, say, a Neapolitan or like a flat six. It can just be you have these chromatic chords and they're going to function as these things so then you need to learn how do i compose those chords and then once i identify the function i can use different little clues to tell me what the exact chord is that's how i interpreted what you said neapolitan is not a borrowed chord Uh, yeah that's true yeah just in case reddit gets at us yeah 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 yeah. (laughs) i mean there there's many other things it just Um, looks and acts like one (laughs) but but like so that if I was to continue defending this point, I think I would go along the lines and say that 
teaching secondary dominance almost like if you've taught five to one, the secondary dominant isn't really something new or different. It's just five to one. Mm-hmm. No, I agree. It's like really just borrowed chords and secondary dominance, at least from an ear training perspective, it's all going to be like, oh, we're used to hearing these chords and all of a sudden, oh, there's something new. <laughs> right. So that I think it might be really hard to say that because I would think if you're following common practice that you're probably going to teach five to one as one of the first things that you work on. So Mm -hmm. it's going to be hard to say that borrowed chords happen before that. But as a general concept, like when you do a worksheet where you're just practicing writing five, one, five, one, and you're doing the little four, four, four voice parts that like, really that's practicing secondary dominance at the same time. It's just, what if you had a five right before chord X? Okay, you've practiced Whoa. it. Whoa, X, that's a new one. Yeah. <laughs> I was not aware. This is Music. a recent development. Musical alphabet was A, B, C, D, E, F, G, X. <laughs> <laughs> no, I totally get where you're coming from with that. I think I would still, right now, if I was going to design a curriculum, I think I'd still do secondary dominance first, just for the sake of starting narrow and then going more broad. But I agree that it does follow fall under the same kind of umbrella so if you could find another logical way to sequence it i think there's an well, argument think, to be made but i just to me it's like secondary dominance is like a starting point and from there you can say oh learn how like you remember how we learned to listen for this specific motion when you heard something weird and chromatic so that i think my argument as far as uh when you're teaching it would be that if within the semester if it Um, falls at a weird time so that let's say you were going to introduce secondary dominance as the last bit of material before winter break Mm -hmm. to me i would rather just hey we're going to talk about some borrowed chords for a little bit and introduce that and then really be able to double down on secondary dominance when we got back god just because i wouldn't want them to have you know like a month and a half of here is how you deal with secondary dominance, go away and then come (laughs) back and me expect them to remember it. But really I end up having to reteach it. Whereas if we worked on borrowed chords and really we're just discussing the idea of you still follow the phrase model. We just changed the color up a little bit that that's to me, that's not a huge step. And like you could do that in a couple weeks come back and move on and not have it be a big deal one way or the other. Right. I get that. Fair point. All right, Adam. Mm. <laughs> Tiebreaker. Oh. Where would you teach the Picardy third? <laughs> Why would I teach the Picardy third? It's a tiebreaker. Just go for it. No, but that's, that's my question is why would I teach it? Because it's a borrowed chord. It's the one that you're allowed to it's, steal from major. It, But it's not. So where would you introduce that? Like, I don't even know if I would. I mean, yeah, that's my thing. Is like, if I ever taught it, it would be like a throwaway when we were looking at some piece that we're analyzing where there is a Picardy theory. I'd be like, oh, this is a thing. But I wouldn't make them, like, All ear right. train it. Just because. All right, no points awarded. <laughs> <laughs> the correct answer was as early as possible. <laughs> what do you mean as early as possible? Why would I ever bring that up? Like I don't even like it when it happens. A bunch of our exam, a bunch of our examples had it in it. I don't know. 
I don't really? mean spend time on it. Like, I just think it's fun. it's cool. You know, it's like a, is it? I don't know. I don't. Do you, at this like point, it. it's like a what? It's like Picker- a theory. What Pickerty third have you ever listened to and been like, oh, thank goodness he ended on major. <laughs> All right, fine. I don't. Well, no, I more mean like it's a it's like a theory meme at this point. <laughs> Where, like, you'll play it and all your students will be like, this again. (laughs) I mean, maybe. All right. For real. Points actually awarded. (laughs) Yeah. This is tough. Um, I'm going to have to go with Seth. Okay. I'm sorry. It's just that I agreed. Like, the Christmas break example, I think, was... That's right. Christmas it was, it was good. <laughs> I think that if you if you're teaching the functions, if you're really hitting those hard, your students will still be able to fill out a phase model with the borrowed chords, and they may not be able to if you were to do that with, like if they, if you did a dictation where you only told them to like notate the the phrase model, and you didn't ask them to like name each chord, I think they'd have a much easier time doing one with borrowed chords out of the blue than with secondary dominance out of the blue. Yeah. Now, with all that being said, I would definitely teach secondary dominance first. And <laughs> really? like, as far as like students get confused on whether it's a two or a four, I wouldn't introduce like, hey, one of these could be diminished. <laughs> it's yeah, just a what... recipe for disaster. <laughs> for a long time, I'd write all four of those on the board and be like, all right, look, here's all your predominance. Don't panic. It's a 50% chance of being a two and a 50% chance of being a four. Don't mess up. Well, like there was that. And then I would, I would walk through the students. I can hear you. Yeah. But I would walk through the, okay, there's really only three chord progressions that like could be possible. It either goes one, five, one, five, one, or some combination of one to five and back to one. Or you could go like one predominance five one. Yeah. Like there's only so many options. And once you think about it like that, that, okay, now I know what I'm actually listening for. Seth, what would you think of a cadence that went minor three, minor three, seven, minor three, four, two. iconic (laughs) that is still the worst dictation i have ever graded in my history as a music theory teacher (laughs) i would remind them hey the chances of you hearing a three on this are so infinitesimal that i don't want to see you write it down i i I think and i I still got a minor three three seven three four two turned back to me i think there was um like i think the it was like the last semester of two. Libby, just because I can't mute you, just because I can mute you in post, please don't take advantage of it and just have full-on conversations over there. Sound like bad teaching. I'm kidding. <laughs> you can talk to you. I'm a bad teacher? <laughs> Libby had her first. Um, No, but like, <laughs> I think we introduced that the three chord was a possibility, like the last bit of the second semester. And I think I even told them like, just write a one six. Like, don't believe it's a three unless you're like absolutely convinced because there's mm-hmm. still a better chance. It's a one six than it is a three. Yeah. 
No, the only time we ever functionally used a three is if the example was circle of fits. And you could tell those because they were eight chords instead of the normal seven. <laughs> so it's like, hey, everybody got an eight chord one. Everybody get your uh, one, four, seven out. I'm like, <laughs> oh, well, it, it was also like uh, when students would hear that it was a uh, five, um, five, four, three, right? No, five, four, two. Um, like they would hear that and then they would write something else for the next chord. And it was like, guys, it's a one mm-hmm. six. There are no mm-hmm. other options. Don't yeah. write anything. <laughs> it's true. No, I've, I've had this conversation before. All yeah. right. Fourth question is currently Seth with two, Livy with one. All right. Here's one that I think will be fun for whoever uh, chooses the negative position. Just because I think it'll be a hoot. Okay. Should music history really spend so much time on pre-Baroque music? God. I thought this was a music theory pedagogy debate. <laughs> it's music. I said, I did, I did caveat. I said music, music theory and music pedagogy in the intro. Okay. Because I knew this question was coming. <laughs> We've all taken graduate music history. Yeah. Yes, we have. And there's a likelihood that we might have to teach it one day. Yeah. So let's, let's hash True. it out. Do we really need all the pre-Baroque stuff? Said every student ever. Um, I think... I don't know what official stance this would be, but my initial response is like, I, I see the value in Renaissance because you're getting a lot into like... I was like, conflicted on whether to make it pre-Renaissance or pre-Baroque. Well, with Renaissance, you with get that. a lot of influence in the actual like culture and world history of the time. Whereas before that... I, I've never applied it. I've never needed it. I've never seen the application for it unless you're a historian. Like like medieval, I don't need anything before it. I don't need, at least personally. All right, let's keep it pre-Baroque. Livy can be the no, we don't need a position with an asterisk on the Renaissance. Okay. Seth, tell (laughs) us why it's mandatory that every music student learns about music starting in like 900. (laughs) Okay, so... The whole purpose. I don't is have a bias here. I really don't. If <laughs> if we don't spend time on it, then there's this glorification of the common practice, and there's this misunderstanding that everything was always major and minor scales, and that's not true. And I would go even further uh, with if you took somebody, sat them down at the piano, they knew nothing about it there's more likelihood that they would play something that is modal that they liked that was the white keys on the piano than it is that they start plucking out all these major and minor scales. Because really, either it's going to be pentatonic or it'll be a modal thing of some kind. And so if you were to teach somebody from scratch and they were just figuring things out on a piano, that's what they would figure out they would not figure out here's all the different ways I can transpose the major scale around the piano. And so when we think about that, that that's more in line with what historically happened. Yes, we had, we figured out this collection of pitches that we started to use before that it wasn't, it was nonsense that you would play on a piano. Just like we, if you sit down and you try to make something up like any five or four year old will, like they're playing Gregorian chant. It like it's nonsense. It's not <laughs> real common practice music yet. 
But we have to understand that that's where it started. Because it's from that that eventually there started to be like, okay, let's focus on these modes, these collections of notes. And then get into, okay, regardless of which one we're in, we'll start to do... um, Oh, goodness, I can't think of the... I can think of what it is, but not um, counterpoint. But like the early... Uh, strict counterpoint where it was like specifically okay you can move in six you can move and fourths fourths may not be one but you can definitely move in six or suspensions work a certain way and like there's all i can't think of the right with there's a term that goes with that but if you don't talk about all of that before stuff you don't understand really why common practice are you talking about the notre dame polyphony yeah yeah, yeah. before that even No, no no i was kind of talking about that okay I was just trying to help you think of that word. Yeah, it's not it. Oh, no, it's a species counterpoint. Oh, yeah. Yeah. But like all that's, of that. That's later than that. I mean, it's closer to the Baroque. Uh, yeah, it's not It's not Notre Dame. But I mean, I think it would be 1500s. But anyway, the point being that you have to go through all of that to truly appreciate. Here's what we started to do in the common practice and all of like the... Well, the uh, pitch class set we were using, the major and minor modes became more stable in the common practice, like the 1650 to turn of the century 1900, like that became more stable. But a lot of how you manipulate the set were ways that they manipulated it early on just outside of that. Eh. I just don't care. <laughs> it's a harsh take. I mean, I think you're gonna have to bring it all a little stronger. <laughs> if you can't, if you can't depend on my bias, then you're gonna have to make an actual <laughs> argument. <laughs> like, if I'm gonna do this fairly, I mean, I were, more than a, were you eh. swayed in any sort of way by yours? Yeah. Well, you made a real argument. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, but so, I, I mean, guess. <laughs> So right now, balls in Livy's court. They're fine. <laughs> I mean, where where my mind kind of went was to like other subjects. Like there's there's an amount of basics that we just lump into like a real concept once it's been established. And yeah, you may mention a couple names like so and so did this before and so and so did this before, but we've gotten to this actual concept that we still use. And here, let's go into detail about that. And that's kind of how I feel about starting with the Renaissance. Because, yeah, people were doing stuff, and it influenced, like, all the all the stuff that Seth said is true, and it's valid. It's just, it's like, we don't use it strictly in the way that they were doing it anymore. I don't feel like we use it in the way that it's been incorporated into other concepts since. And I feel like those concepts really started kind of coming together in the Renaissance. So it's like if you start there, you can just kind of hit it from that point and say like, oh, people were doing stuff beforehand that led up to this. And like, here's a few names, but we don't need to go into a month's worth of detail. That's my opinion. I mean, I get that. But like when you were talking about the modes and that we should spend time on those, my thing is this is the same kind of thing of like 
we could just focus on here is the bare essentials of the common practice, and this will be mainly what everybody's working on, but it's a misunderstanding of where all of that came from and how we're manipulating it on some level. But I think that I, I agree with you. Learning the names of those people is borderline pointless because mm-hmm. those names won't come up again. Um, and like, I understand the argument of those are people too. Like, I'm sure they would care if you knew their name. <laughs> I, I get it. But in the grand scheme of things, it's more likely that, you know, like all of box children than it is that you remember five people from like, I don't know, the medieval period. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think so. So Adam. <laughs> hmm. <laughs> I was afraid you were going to say that. <laughs> this was hard again. Cause I'm, I'm, I'm so biased. And so swayed by Seth's the argument. Hmm. I do think it's true that we don't use a lot of it. Yeah, like I can't let my own opinions because I have I have ways that I would have made an argument on either side, mm-hmm. but I can't use that against you guys. That wouldn't be fair. I'll sway you. What's your argument? <laughs> uh, well, I think once again it's just because it, the scope is so limited. Of like. Yeah, you can add another 600 years of music history, but it's still going to be all the European white guys. When, like, what if we branched out and tried to look at, like, more music from around the world and incorporated that into music history? I feel like that would be a better service than learning exactly what a motet means every hundred years because they change the definition of it on a schedule. Now, when you say motet, I have no idea from which history review class you are specifically referring to. Um, Mm -hmm. But... Yeah, well, I every mean, hundred years they changed what a motet was. So, like, <laughs> Adam, my point was, I knew the exact history course that you were referencing. Oh, 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 oh. I see. I think, I and I think by chance I reread through those notes like within the past calendar year, and so I saw <laughs> all of mot- this motet, this motet, this. But yeah, I'm with you. That yes, it would be more beneficial to look at okay what pentatonic scales were they using in South Asia and Africa versus spending extra scales, you know, developing in, in East Asia, right. Southeast Asia. Which then goes back to my point of if you were, if you were going to talk about how somebody really figured out some music and made some decisions on, here's the set that I'm going to use that if you sit down on the piano, either you're playing something modal which would be our Gregorian chants and other things, or you're playing something that's pentatonic, the black keys, which would be your Asia and your Africa generally. I mean, I would say there is some like North American things, but I, I don't know enough to speculate on when those came into play. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But I do know that like fairly early on, like India and Africa had their own music It just isn't talked about because they aren't the history books that we read. But like, as far as a naturalistic approach to what we're talking about, I think you have to acknowledge this is what we had. And then we made some like decisions about what, you know, which of the modes we were going to use. 
I don't know. <laughs> I feel like Libby's argument that there's just better ways to spend the time really rings more true for me. <laughs> I mean, I'm not I'm not saying spend three months on it. I think no, I know, but I think I spent like a whole semester on like pre-Renaissance stuff, and that was awful in undergrad. But um, I say is, cut out all of it, though. <laughs> no, but I I think there needs to be a month of like here's where music comes from. I don't know. I think I'm going to go with Livy. I'm very excited. <laughs> so it's tied 2 2. I'm excited because that was my most just off the cuff. I didn't put any sort of like <laughs> professionalism into that. That was just my uh, gut reaction of I do not like music history. <laughs> um, Get it out of oh, here. Man, I, just remembered, I just remembered things I wanted to say earlier. I'm probably not going to cut up the podcast and put it in there because I'm lazy. I was going to say earlier when we were discussing, while you guys were talking about modes, before mm-hmm. I had jumped in, I was going to ask, like, most music degrees require an upper-level theory, don't they? Like beyond the four semesters? Yeah, like at least one. Um, mine, well, we had to take form. Form was required. We, oh, we had to take, we we had had to take, take two take... years of theory and form. Yeah, we had to take four semesters of basic music theory, and then everyone had to take form, and everyone had to take instrumentation, and then performance degrees actually had to take a couple classes oh. beyond that when we were taking our education classes. Mm. Okay, so then that wouldn't really work. Yeah, so we I had, had three full years of theory classes that were required for I everyone. I had to take an additional theory elective, like just in my major. I and wish we had that. Composition or orchestration. Fretboard theory was a popular one, but I didn't oh. take that because I don't really play guitar. Um, those kind of classes. I was just going to say that maybe you could stick the modes in there, make them more yeah. of like an upper level thing, you know, but yeah. it, not everybody is going to take that class or need that class. Part of which is what was mind boggling to me at USM was like USM had all these great players, like this incredible facu- faculty, a way bigger school than Cary, way better, I mean, I'm just going to say, like probably better jazz band than Cary. Hey, um, if it wasn't for the tornado, they would have an equal, if not better. Jazz band. I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> the um, tornado only affected the jazz band. Yes, that would be nice. <laughs> that would have been nice. Um, I would have made that trade. Sorry, jazz band. No. <laughs> um, real trolley problem there. But like at Cary, we learned modes, and then at USM, where they had all these instrumental groups and all these performers and like improv classes and stuff like that, that lots of people were taking, they didn't learn modes, and so you had to like learn the modes by doing, which is good in the improv classes. But I felt like you could have laid that groundwork earlier, because people were doing so much of it, but they weren't actually being taught it until they started doing it. You know, like I just felt mm-hmm. like that was like a disconnect in the program. Like, why don't you take out the four weeks of Schenker and do? modes and get them ready for improv if they want to you know yeah i i didn't mean to make that anti-shanker again that was just what I, uh, that's the point i was trying that's the rest of the point i was trying to make livy i think we've got an anti-shanker on our hands mm. <laughs> i think a lot of schools would agree with you because i think a lot of schools prefer function over theory foundation right um which is fair or like does usm do a 20th century unit at the end of their theory I think they have a 20th century class. That's mandatory? I or think like Brumbolo, no, I think Brumbolo teaches a 20th century class for undergrads. Yeah, I That's think he does. Mm-hmm. I'm pretty sure they have to take it. I could be wrong, but I think they oh, okay. have to. Gotcha. Okay, well, that's good then, because ours was tacked on to the second So half was ours. Our... We didn't learn anything. 
Yeah, ours, ours is great. I mean, that's where I credit like my love of 20th century music too. Right. No, mine was four semesters of like mm-hmm. basic theory, and then orchestration and form. Yeah. Which is basically what Livy had. Yes. And yeah, it was like the last two sections or the last section of theory four was like, oh yeah, serialism. I was like, okay, cool. Yeah, they so basically just... like told us what that was. We never did anything with it though. They were essentially like, this is a thing that exists. And that was it. Yeah, we we did some things and it just made me think like, oh, so instead of putting letters on the notes, you put numbers 1 through 12 on them? Cool. Right. So when we learned that, I missed the first day that he introduced that. <laughs> and so I came back and he's like, all right, so we're going to look over here at our tone row matrix and we're going to look at our, you know, our pitch class sets <laughs> and we're going to understand which row form we're in using the pitch class sets that we have in front of us. And I was like, look, I understand every individual word that you're saying, but when you put them in that order, in that sentence, I got nothing. Like, I'm I'm out. <laughs> anyway, sorry to get us off track again. Those are no. just some loose thoughts that I had. All right, so this is the tiebreaker final, this is the final question. This is the final question. This is the tiebreaker. This is the most open-ended one of all, but I think one that will spark good, good discussion. Should we teach music theory? <laughs> <laughs> I say just let him go. Um. All right, ready? What topic most needs to be added to modern fundamental curriculum? Talking just fundamentals or talking undergrad basic theory? Mm, I guess I kind of mean... I was thinking just fundamentals, like just the, not literally... Okay, the two years. I keep saying fundamentals. I mean the two years okay, of theory. Okay, so the basic What topic most theory. needs to be added somewhere, anywhere inside... Of that two-year gap. can be early, can be late. Just what do you think students need now that they're not getting enough of? Oh. How are we going to spruce things up? Um, are you... Okay, so I have a skill. It's not a topic. It's a skill. Will that work? Can you... Is it a teachable skill? Yes. It's a practicable okay, great. skill. Um, great. And maybe... I was going to say, this is purely based on my experience in the two schools I have been involved with. So... Mm-hmm. My thought that first comes to mind is error detection. And that is a skill that we were told to practice a lot of when I was teaching. We were told to teach that a lot, like have them do a lot of error detection. Um, Mm -hmm. So that being said, it's my fault if my students didn't get enough of it. But in my mind, error detection is one of the skills that if you are going to go on to be a teacher of music, a performer of music, a composer, conductor, any of that stuff, you have to be able to hear when things are wrong and why they are wrong. And so I mean that is like both skills, like not just error, like detecting that there is an error, but the ability to determine what the error is. Um, (laughs) But so I think that that is one of the most functional skills you can come out of like ear training, I guess. I'm thinking of it as an ear training skill because I think a lot of students, it depends on the skill, on the school, but I think a lot of students can kind of skate by in ear training and it's either kind of a you have it or you don't sort of situation. And there's some yeah. amount of improvement, but if you've just skated by and managed to pass, you probably, you probably like didn't get the ear training that you should have gotten. Um, 
And in those cases, if there was one skill, you could have gotten out of it. I think error detection is primary, especially for future teachers. Because when you're, you're in front of an ensemble or you're coaching even an individual, if you can't hear them make a mistake and you don't catch it, you're not doing them, you're doing them a disservice. Mm-hmm. And you're not able to teach to your full abilities if you don't catch it. So, Yeah. All right, Seth, what do our students most need right now? Um, We've talked about it a lot, and it is Adam's favorite don't... thing. <laughs> I think I think they honestly they need a little more Shanker help. I almost went there, Seth. Yes. <laughs> but the idea, the reason would be I had Shanker growing up, but not everybody gets that. And I would say we know plenty of people that use their vocal cords for a living that view theory classes as I'm just learning what notes to read. Like there is nothing beyond that. And I think that understanding Yeah, but vocalists are a lost cause. So <laughs> I mean Goodbye vocalist <laughs> listeners. <laughs> we enjoyed having you. But like the whole idea being that any performance is enhanced if you're able to analyze and look at a bigger picture than here's this note to this note because i would say if you are thinking on any level of like beyond the very next note then that you are starting to think bigger picture and along those shanker philosophies of okay i'm skipping over some notes that are not as important because what's really important is this note connecting to this note it doesn't matter that i have like an arpeggiated run it's did scale degree four fall to scale degree three. And I think that goes from anything, whether it's, you know, you're looking at the box circle of fifths and talking about those suspensions and how they fall to the next chord. Or if you're looking in Schumann and saying, okay, well, how is he treating the melody and that? So that to me, I think that that's what you need because Vocalists need it. Um, future band directors need it. Future orchestra leaders need it. Like you need to be able to analyze a score and figure out what's most important. And if you're not thinking like that, then you're saying that every note is created equal, and that's not true. Like there are more important notes than other notes, and so if you can't think bigger picture than that then I, I think you're losing musicality. And I think that you are you can't make informed musicality decisions. And I think you will get into, very quickly into a, well, this is how it's been played before. And, you know, it kind of goes back to Adam's modes of, here's how I learned it. Just because he learned it that way doesn't mean that that was really the best way to teach it. Well. It is how he remembers it. <laughs> but that, you know... It's just because this Susan For me, March, it was the most effective way to teach it. <laughs> you didn't learn the other way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I understand this one. <laughs> but, like, just because a Susan March has always been played like that, if there is a theoretical reason that I can find that would make it more musical, I should do that versus, well, this is just tradition and this is what I do. Mm-hmm. Shanker slowly opens the door for independent critical thinking. 
And if you are not an independent critical thinker, then I, I think you're giving up on musicality aspects because you're willing to just say, this is how it's always been played. It's like, think, um, I don't think you were in the class with me, but there, uh, there's a Bach piece that's, um, no, Rubbler does that every time now. Rubbler does that one every semester now. Yeah. Okay, but talking about how, like, this violinist plays it this way because that's how it was always played. Mm-hmm. But, like, if you're not a free thinker, then you just play it how it's always been played. Whereas if you actually sat down and analyzed it, you would play it a different way. And while, again, we do not agree with, like, the human shanker, there mm-hmm. is a, you know, he thought that the performance should come based on the theory and that like you needed to understand the theory to appreciate and make informed decisions. And I agree with that aspect. So Not the I rest of Shanker. <laughs> if I could sum it up very, very succinctly. Livy says we should not play the wrong notes. And Seth <laughs> says we should play the right notes. <laughs> Those are your positions. Yeah. Uh, I should, I believe we should play the important notes. Sorry, sorry. What I mean is Livy says we should know the wrong notes and Seth says we should know the right notes. There it is. Ah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Livy, do you have a rebuttal? No, I like Seth's argument. I just think that for a lot of music students, error detection is a more immediate skill, which if they lack coming out of a music degree, they will suffer more than if they don't have a Shankarian background. But I think from an artistic standpoint, you should have error detection as a fundamental and to become more of an interpreter and a more artistic performer. Yeah. Schenker would help, but I think it's a level of like, there's a basic and then there's an advanced component. And Adam, I will mm-hmm. say that you're the real winner of this episode. If you can name the group that, um, my argument has nothing to do with, but Livy's would support like a group of composers. No, like an entire group of, uh musicians and i would say that the thing that i'm arguing for also does not believe in this thing is it like the music theory the atonal people (laughs) no it's a specific Uh, my my first guess my first guess was second viennese school but then he told me it wasn't composers no no, it's a specific instrument and it's Uh... not the vocalists although the vocalists generally don't have this percussionists yeah. Ah. Because <laughs> with, with Livy's point, they could error detect what they were doing. But with mine, what are you going to do? Yeah, that's, you see that role there? That was the predominant. That's really funny. I've never thought about how Shankarian analysis does not apply to percussion in the slightest. <laughs> unless, unless our friend Taylor gets his way. Hey, True. but here's the thing. The real point is that plenty of percussionists become band directors, and they should learn this point, because if they don't, then they're stuck doing what Livy's suggesting, which is just error detection. And that's wrong because they're just learning what the wrong notes are, not what the right notes are. I, I, I should say, we so should clarify per- real quick, we're only talking about unpitched percussion. Pitched percussionists have melodies, they understand important notes, all that stuff. They're musicians. I mean, unpitched percussionists also understand melody, they just don't utilize it all the time. <laughs> it's not a lack of comprehension. Come on, Livy. I know, I'm just saying, like, we just talked about how, like, <laughs> percussionists don't use theory or whatever, Shankarian theory, and I was like, well, we're talking about unpitched percussion. We should clarify before we offend everyone else after the vocalist that Adam scared away, so. 
I think Libby means before we offend Taylor. Yeah. Don't want to offend our friend Taylor, friend of the show. I don't want to offend Taylor either. I take it back. Taylor is <laughs> a smart, come, intelligent this musician. <laughs> this probably won't come out with three months, so that gives me a while to say goodbye. It's all right. <laughs> <laughs> hey, Taylor, um, Seth, there's going to be a second. To... Let's argue. Just skip over it. <laughs> uh, Seth, will you permit me to interject a question? Yeah, sure into the debate I'm not a part of. You let me do earlier, so I'm going yeah. to take some leeway here. What if I'm not performing music that was written by a German guy over the 300-year period? What do you, as far as, like, should you use Shanker? Yeah, how would I? Okay, to use Shanker, you let's don't get have out to of, have, like, Shanker's social beliefs. Okay, no, 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 but I'm saying let's get out of the common practice period. Yeah. How would I use Shanker now? I mean... We've talked about it a couple different times. Like Livy's thesis, like used parts of that theory to talk about how you sh- could listen and understand what's going on in John Adams' pieces. Okay, but what about my thesis? What about my serial Stravinsky? I don't know enough about it to comment on it. <laughs> <laughs> I, I just it feels so limiting when you talk about it that way because un- analyzing a piece for the purpose of performance can always be done. But when you craft it through this specific lens, it limits it so much. I mean, yes, but to the same effect, um, how are you going to apply error detection? To a serial piece? Yeah. Very, very good ear training. (laughs) Yeah. Like very, very good intervallic ear training. That's hard, but you can still be done. I disagree. <laughs> <laughs> then maybe you don't have enough ear. I don't know what to tell you. I I would say there are things where you're like, ah, I really don't know. Okay. And we, we talked about this a little bit on like when we were talking about Livy's jazz article. Once you get out of here's the set of like pitch class is that I'm used to hearing in certain formations such as major chords or minor chords augmented diminished that at some point once we get beyond that I I don't know how to recognize an 0145 it's just not going to happen but that's not that's so, well so that no but that's going to come out that's that's you talking as a listener though if you analyzed it using serial techniques you would know where those sets were and you could perform those differently than the rest of it you could focus on those things okay so the error detection and the in the intervallic relationships you don't do error detecting of like no that was an 013 buddy (laughs) okay but i i don't have a scenario where you can make a specific line through like a tone row and say look at this happening um but my thought would be there are still significant changes within that piece whether it's form or whatever and so that even if if it's a more simplistic tonic and dominant relationship but tonic and dominant have taken over on new forms as like a and b sections that you still have to understand that and then you're not even talking about shankarian analysis now you're just talking about analysis I, I don't think if that's true because... Away, if you're going to strip away all the things that make it Shankarian and just say, well, yeah, I know we don't have this, and I know we don't have this, and I know we don't have this, but I'm still analyzing it in the same way. Well, are you? 
No, but I, I think you have to pull the concept that would be applicable to that genre. Because if you tried to take the whole thing, then yeah, you can't do it. But, and that's to me, I think where some um, Shankarians get lost is they try to take too much of it. And it's like, no, it's an idea. Take the idea that is most useful and apply it. And so I think that if you're saying, yeah, I have this tone row and this tone row may get inverted or all of these things happen, but really it's the same row. But if at measure 16, I actually change rows, I need to do something to make that more meaningful. And so through that lens, I did have to analyze it and think of, okay, here's where I started. Here's where I went in a tonic to dominant relationship. And that if I come back to tonic, I need to make that meaningful performance wise as well. And so that but, even if it's more simple than like thinking on a broad scale and only using like the phrase model, which is essentially what I'm talking about. I'm not necessarily trying to point out a line mm. in this, but if we're thinking right. broad scale, like phrase model, I think that that's what you can get out of it. I don't know that you can do much more than that when you get into some of the atonal stuff. But he's not the only, he's surely he's not the only theorist who talked about analysis as a means for performance. Like, that can't be an idea unique to him. I mean, I, w- I would agree. I mean, I'd have to but research I, it. But like, I, I don't know. It's kind of outrageous. <laughs> off, the t- off the top of my head, I don't know. That it took that... us like a thousand years for somebody to decide that I should understand this before I try to sing it. Like, Well, yeah, but I think the, the other part is that I'm advocating for uh, specifically the Shanker idea is that while someone may have come around before him and said that we should analyze and make these um, we should deduce things based on our analysis and bring that out on the performance that it's not a note to note thing that it's you have to find the right notes and so I I don't know that I don't know of somebody before him that was like, yeah, big picture, you'll have this going on, if that makes sense. Mm-hmm. Olivia, you're still there? Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. She's just waiting for you to render a verdict. I know. And see, the problem is that there's no way that I'm going to be able to render a verdict and for people to think it's impartial, no matter how I go. Like, Now that you've declared your position... Yeah, exactly. Like, there's just it's not it's not fair anymore. And that even if I do it in like a genuine place in my heart, it's still just gonna look bad. I don't know. I I think you're fine. I like I understand your point. Mm. That it at some point it's it's hard to believe that if even if we were accepting of the idea that like there's an A section and a B section and that this is the other tone row and that you were accepting the other tone row as your dominant before you return mm-hmm. back to the um, original tone row. Like, yeah. that is a far step from, like, the original Shanker model. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think it would be one of the, like, theoretically, it would be the background analysis. But I think once you, like, flesh in the rest of the Shanker, like, middle, foreground, and other like the foreground would in no way be representative of what you were saying the background was. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that that's where your view of it gains validity. Right. Is that the foreground is so far removed from the background that it's like, I don't know that I'm really hearing it or thinking of it like that. 
but like also just the methods and the i know we don't talk, like to talk about composers intent but like they're just really not thinking about it like that you know yeah i think anyway. it's hard to say sometimes you know like there's yeah. some there's some mozart well, like, pieces okay, so, it was just there's some mozart pieces where like i was pointing it out to my students in class and saying yeah do you see that like he just put a bunch of appoggiaturas right in a row and like that's how he built this thing and they were like you know it's hard for me to believe that he really would have thought that and it's like but is it you know because on some mm-hmm. level like the theories come after the music right yeah yeah one of the pieces i did on my thesis stravinsky does a thing where at the end of each section more or less there's like five sections at the end of each one there's just like this open interval of a fifth which is a really it's an it's a mostly serial piece mostly atonal but there's this, this consonant interval of a fifth at the end of each section and it's like c and g the first time and c and g the second time then b and f sharp the next time then the fourth time it's g and d and the last time it's c and g like he's obviously toying with like a a familiar key structure right so like he's in like a tonic and then he goes someplace weird and then he goes to a dominant then he comes home so what you were missing a three in there uh you had like a g and f sharp a d and a c yeah, something. So you've got a five line with a raised four. <laughs> no, no, not, not, I'm not talking about a five line. I'm talking no, about like closely related keys or whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so like I understand, but like that's him more. He's not thinking about it in like a, a phrase model way. He's toying with a familiar construct, which happens to be the phrase. I don't know. I feel like I seem so vitriolic this episode. I don't know why. <laughs> I feel bad. I'm not angry about it. I just... This was passionate I've probably ever sounded about Shanker. I usually just don't care that much. No, I, I know what it really is. What? It's that I was the judge last time. And, you know, <laughs> no, if our listeners no. haven't heard the results, like, the no, results are in. Fair and square. You know. All right. My verdict is, and no one's going to believe me, <laughs> when I think that Livy got that one. Shocking. <laughs> <laughs> no, not but not because of the Shanker thing, but because it's trying to speak from an unbiased place about your arguments. What do students need more? I think I think error correction is what students need more. I remember when I had to like there was uh, when I my senior year at Cary, I was the chorale president, which meant that I had to like conduct them for one song. And it was just so stressful not knowing if I was doing a good job or not. And if I had had better error correction, I would have known if I was doing a good job or not, you know? But, like, I just couldn't tell. I was kind of trusting everybody else to do what they were supposed to be doing. So it was all personal. (laughs) No, I'm speaking from experience that that is something that people do need. Not only did he disagree with me, he supported Livy's uh, (laughs) the whole time. Oh, boy. (laughs) No, No, but, like, my students didn't have it either, you know? like. Yeah, and whose fault was that? Well, they got better. <laughs> and whose fault was that? Me. Exactly. Um, no, I I think both Livian, like, that opposed to the other questions, I think really we were allowed to take whatever stance we want. And I think we went in yeah. different directions. Yeah, there's no way was... to pit those against each other because they weren't, like, opposing views, you know? They were just two in- independent things. Right. And... And I would say that if somebody believes that they're a truly impartial judge, then they're wrong. Mm-hmm. Like, of course you have biases. You're a person. 
I tried really hard to be impartial, I promise. It's okay. I like arguing with biases. It's better that way. Because <laughs> then if you concede to the other person, then you know that uh-huh. you've really done something. Yeah. Anyway, congratulations to Livy for being the first Thank and only two-time winner Thank of you. Let's Argue here on the podcast. <laughs> the championship belt doesn't need to switch houses, which is good because <laughs> she's further away from me and Adam than me and Adam are from each other. But yep. next time we do this, it'll be be- down between the two of y'all. So someone will Consolation bracket time. I mean, we could do that. Or just whoever continues to lose has to ask questions <laughs> next time. No, I want to come up with questions. <laughs> <laughs> I want to ask questions. I think questions. Adam really... Do the pedagogy one. I don't, we kind of just decided that on the fly. We could probably do a round two. Libby's got more questions about pedagogy. Yeah. Or I can have, come up with questions about something else if I need to. Yeah. Or we'll figure it out. Our listeners could come up with questions. You know, what's a topic that you want Livy to come up with questions? Yeah, I was gonna for? say, hey, 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 that don't let them come up with the questions. I want no, 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 <laughs> but the topic. Yeah, that'd be great. Yeah. Well, and just you know, food for thought. We could even do like a uh, members that are paying for the premium content. <laughs> We could do a Which whole episode. Exist, like, if there is a single questions. person out there that wants to give us money, yes, you can ask all the questions you want. <laughs> Thank you, everybody, for listening to the show. Please like our page on Facebook. We might be somewhere else. Hopefully, we've got a subreddit going at this point. Jump on there. Tell us what you think of the show. What are some sides to either my points or Livy points that you agreed or, more importantly, disagreed with? How egregious was the host and their duties? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, The host was fine, you know. But yeah, thanks, guys, for listening. We'll see you next time. Bye. Bye, guys.